Hey friend, I am so grateful that you are back. If you're new here, welcome to the Try and Stop Me podcast. My name is Colleen Blum and we drop a new episode every other Monday about unstoppable individuals who are really shaking up their industries. We're going to get an up close seat to listen along as they share their stories behind the journey that led them to where they are today. We have some really exciting things cooking up for this show and I'm super excited to roll them out to you guys within the next couple of weeks. If you're new here, the goal of this show is all about you. We want to motivate you, inspire you, challenge you, shake you up, and help you grow. I'm excited to say we're building a community on the Try and Stop Me Instagram page filled with support, motivation, and definitely some blooper laughs. So if you're not already, go ahead and follow along because I would really sincerely love to meet you. For today's show, I want you to think about this. Have you actually ever sat back and thought about how much your life has changed in a year, let alone five years or 10? How many people have you come across during all of these years that have shaped you, changed you? Have you actually ever stopped to take a moment to be grateful for those moments, whether they were good or bad? Today's story is just about that. Our next unstoppable guest is Chris Schrembra. He's the founder of the 747 Club. And don't worry, we're going to get into all the juicy details of what those numbers actually mean. Guys, for Chris, life today is not nearly what it looked like five years ago and a far cry from what it looked like 10 years ago. He is the real deal. Not only is he the founder of this incredible, life-changing company, he's the best-selling author of the book Gratitude and Pasta, The Secret Sauce for Human Connection. USA Today named him the gratitude guru. And truthfully, in my opinion, Chris is a real leader of change. He was recognized as one of the six successful men, smashing the stigma around mental health on a list alongside Michael Phelps, Brandon Marshall of the NFL, Kid Cudi, Howie Mandel, and Chris Evans. By 30, on paper, Chris, he was a successful Broadway producer, but on the inside, he was far from feeling that way. Chris went through some really challenging times throughout his life as he navigated his way through mental health. He faced depression, suicide rehab, and even jail. But once Chris was able to see life, experience life through travel, his world shifted. Not once, but twice. The first time, it saved his life. The second time, that changed his life and led him to this exact place today. So listen along as he shares his story about how gratitude and pasta forever changed his world. Where you grew up, little old Chris, what was he like? Was he running around like a maniac? Was he a quiet little boy? Tell us a little bit about the background of you. Young Chris was this weird little guy. You know, they put me on cow tranquilizers at the age of five. You know, I grew up like in a ADHD. Yeah, ADHD. Mm. But I had so many dreams and so many weird visions and so many ways of expressing myself. And uh, we came from uh, my parents were pillars in our community. And the doctors said that in order to prevent flare-ups or the possibility of embarrassment in a social setting, that they should heavily medicate me. And mm. so they did that. And um, it, it was literally like putting blinders, you know, on someone who has periphery. I had no periphery anymore. And so that caused me to want to either act out or reach out or experiment any chance that I got. You know, when you when you give someone a glass of wine for their entire childhood, they don't become an alcoholic. They learn how to drink 
you know, manageably. This is just an example. It's not my mm-hmm. example. But when you put a kid on the reins and don't give them freedom for an entire childhood of creative expression, then a lot of flare-ups occur. So that kid was confused. Uh, that kid could not speak out. But at the same time, that kid did a lot of things. But little Chris was, um, I was never the star of the team. I always got the effort awards or the coaches awards or the spirit awards. And I kept trying to lead, but not many people would follow. And that really was a theme that carried with me through young adulthood is that once I left my little island in South Carolina and I went away to college, that was my first opportunity to have my own identity. Well, that didn't work. So they kicked me out. They sent me off to rehab, a few stents in jail, a few suicide, depression, all that shit. And um, they finally took the medication off. So for the first time in one's life, I could start to see. I could start to find myself. So that, that was young Chris. He was weird. He didn't know. He didn't know what was good, what was bad, what was right, what was wrong, what was weird, what was normal. Right. How much did you learn from being on all those type of medications when you came off of it? Was it like, I don't need this anymore or there's still something there, but the medication was totally wrong or the dosages were way too high or it was just ridiculous because I couldn't even express myself whatsoever because medication could be good in some senses, but other senses pumping too much is a little too over extreme. I was taken off the medicine on June 13th, June 15th. 2008, I was 30 days into my first rehab, and one day they cold turkeyed me. And those first four days sucked. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't really move. I uh, was very lethargic. I didn't eat. I didn't know what to do next. But then something magical happened. I started dreaming. Mm. And I dreamed for the first time in my entire life. And it felt so good. It felt so good to dream. To have something inside you and let it out. And uh, that was a big turning point in my life. So the medication, really, you couldn't think, you couldn't dream or be creative whatsoever until you were almost an adult at that point? Mm. I could, but not what I'm capable of. And that's the difference is, you know, so many people, when they strive for success, they achieve success, but then they want more. They want more. They want more because they know that they're capable of more. That's the weird thing. Knowing when you're good at something, you know you can go grab for it all. It's a whole nother conversation. But yeah, my my life looked great through my teens, through my early adulthood. You know, I was uh, achieving in athletics and academics. I was philanthropically inclined. I gave back to the community and I organized groups of individuals to do positive things. Yeah, cool. Nice. Check the boxes. But that wasn't Chris. That's what I mean by society standards, right? Mm -hmm. Of like, you're supposed to do all of these steps to hit to make society feel like you belong or you're Mm -hmm. part of the crowd successful. And by every means, you are on your way to being a super successful society standard of the creation and what producing all these Broadway plays. And so that came a little bit later. What I was on the path to do was either sounds shitty to say, but take over a company that was going to be handed to me 
or go off and strike up a career in the big city in an industry that was similar to the industry I grew up in, real estate. You know, we've uh, we've achieved tremendous success in real estate. Why would I ever venture, as the only child, why would I ever venture away from the family company? Oh, that's not what a good Southern boy does, is it? <laughs> and so instead of going to New York City for a college internship or right after my sophomore year in college, Instead of doing that, they shipped me off to rehab. And that was the first step along a nonlinear path. But rehab was only supposed to last so long and I was supposed to go back to college. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I just never did. Mm -hmm. I fell back in love with the great outdoors. I ended up moving down to live on an iceberg in a glacier in Patagonia, southern tip of the world for a long time. And it was there that I learned to, uh, to live the thrills of life. Right? There's something exotic and sexy about death and death being very near to you. And I felt that, you know, exposed to the elements where death was just around the corner. And that woke me up. It allowed me to have nightmares. See, people oh, used yeah. to convince me that nightmares were bad. But I think nightmares are good. I think fear is good. Fear gives you fuel. And so staring death in the face, staring fear in the face, down in that frozen tundra, that's when what it came alive. Experience. Okay, so they sent you to rehab to get your life together. Then the expectation of coming Which back it to didn't, small it town. didn't fucking work. I <laughs> failed every rehab I went. To. I broke every rule, failed yeah. every system, mm. didn't graduate one of them. I just left. So did you get sick of yourself at some point to say like, all right, enough's enough. You know, I don't want to be on this other medication, but I don't really oh, need to be course. on everything else. Because if nothing's working in rehab, then what well, works? You, you, you actually have a great way of asking that. Did you get sick of yourself? Yeah, that's the point of addiction. Mm. You get sick of yourself and you look elsewhere. You look Good at point. shopping too much. You look at working too much. You look at biting your fingernails too much. You look at drinking too much. That's the definition of being sick of yourself. Mm. Not finding a purpose. Mm. Not finding meaning. And it took failing every rehab, saying yes to what the therapists were saying just to appease them, but them not actually believing me because that's why they never graduated me from anything. Right. And I, I've, I've really not graduated much in my life. I've either dropped out, gotten kicked out, or had someone else do the shit for me. That's enablement. Enablement leads to addiction. Enablement leads to misery. But then once the world gave me those great elements down in Patagonia and said, you either take care of your peers or you both die, well, that's meaning. That's purpose. You can't afford to get sick of yourself. You can't afford to do any of those extracurricular distracted activities. And you just got to face it. And then when you face it, you get through it. And if you do it with the right perspective, the positive mental attitude, which can be developed over time, by the way, not all woo-woo bullshit. You don't have to be <laughs> born with it. But once you develop that, then you can develop the self-confidence and self-efficacy to get through hard shit. Mm -hmm. Now, we'll get, we'll get around later in this discussion of how gratitude is that solution now and how we built an entire life around that. But it was really, and, and it's funny, Jenny Messier, a, a great gal who's like a second mother to me, on my birthday call the other week, she, uh, when she was giving gratitude to me, which everybody in the group call did, which was a good change of events for once. She said to all the peers who probably don't know that part about me, she said that's when he really woke up and uh, fell back in love with nature, moved back to Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, to, to be a boat captain. What a change of events there. <laughs> yeah. 
So run some boats, give some tours, be able to tell some stories of the island. I truly love. I love the smell of the pluff mud. I love the, the twang of the Spartina grass as you roll up alongside it. I love the crack of the shell on your skin and the infection it leaves. That's life, yeah. right? That's Mother Nature. So I decided that I would devote the rest of my life to doing that. Well, somewhere along the way, I got sick of myself. And so I started a few companies. I started a video company. I started a marketing company. I gathered two of my best friends to join me. We made this little company and started marketing and selling shit to our island that they didn't need. And eventually, in May of 2011, someone looked at us and said, I think you've outgrown the island, Chris. It's time to set your sights on the big city. I'd always grown up coming to New York City. All our friends were professional athletes here for all the New York sports teams. I love this city. My dad's from Jersey. I get it. And someone had to say, I, I think you're, you're, uh, you're outgrowing your britches here. You should probably leave. So I sold all my boats. I sold all my cars. I liquidated all my local assets. And I moved to New York City on a Thursday, August 31st, 2011, with no job, no college degree, one suitcase, living on my buddy's couch in Brooklyn with $8,000 in my pocket. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew damn well I'd give myself the chance to figure it out. So I started doing what's on the thing behind you. I started hustling, started going everywhere. But one day I called up my dad and said, I think I want to be an actor. He laughed. He said, I, I, I don't really know what to do with that, but here, you know, talk to my friend Tony. So his friend Tony said I could come over and visit him one day. And I went over with all these notes scribbled on a piece of paper to say, hey, teach me about the business, old guy. He, he had been very, very, very successful and famous in the 70s. And he was, uh, you know, just, just chilling as a single old man. And so he said I could come and hang. And we didn't even talk about the business. We talked about life. He asked me about my tattoos. He made me talk to a rock. We drank a fuck ton of wine, <laughs> ate good pasta, became bros. Yeah. And he said, what are you doing for work? I said, well, nothing. I just got rejected by... Uh, <laughs> uh, Urban Outfitters. That's a whole uh. other thing. <laughs> well, I didn't get rejected. I got accepted on the spot. I walked in with my resume and I said, hey, I think I want to work here. And they looked at my resume and I had like, you know, uh, owning businesses and yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they walked in and they were like, uh, yeah, you got the job. They're doing training right now. Why don't you join? And I joined their training. It's like mm -hmm. eight of us, six of us or whatever. Everybody's in streetwear. I'm still in my pink polo from South Carolina. You know, that, that confused this boy. Kid, yeah. Look, yeah, this fucking <laughs> little boy. And some woman, I'll never forget, white door with the glass window. She pops her head through the window, looks at me, looks at everybody, looks at me. Uh, oh, new, you know, new, fresh talent, future of our company. Who's that guy? And she steps in the door and she says, you, can you come here? I want to see you. <laughs> and she was holding my resume. Say, hey, what's up? This is great. She said, get out of here. Oh. I said, what? I said, I don't think you're a good fit. And I think you could do a lot more in life. Go. What a saint. That was the afternoon oh. that then I went to go see Tony right after. Wow. I was almost going to cancel Tony because I was getting a job. You're like, I just got rejected from my resume, no, I swear which to God. is good. <laughs> I, swear, I swear to God, it happened so quick. I didn't even get the chance to think about calling Tony to say, and he's a very on-time guy. I didn't even have the chance to call him to say, uh, thanks. Um, but so, so Tony said, what are you doing next week? 
want to come a- hang out? I'll, I'll, I'll pay a couple bucks. So we just started hanging out. Started going to charity galas every night together like the odd couple. I'd drive him here. I'd drive him there. I'd call people in his phone book. I just figured out shit to do. Mm-hmm. And then one day, I read this script. It was a one-man play about Fiorello LaGuardia that he had done in the 1980s. And it was a great play. I loved the script. And I even tried to do a monologue about it for my acting classes, which he fucking hated. He was like, <laughs> man, you are a bad actor. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is, a, this is a big, big actor. And I'm <laughs> feeling his shit. No, but I, I brought back in the play and I said, Tony, we should do this. I'm serious. He said, fine, you produce it. I'll act in it. Well, I had no clue mm-hmm. what that meant. I was a boat captain growing up. I don't know, what am I going to do? Produce a play? So we, we picked a date eight months out. We spent the entire summer selling all the tickets and uh, a new career was birthed. Yeah. That's incredible. How does that even happen? Literally everything aligned with that one day. Yeah. So a whole career. I mean, like, I, I got to, like, buy stock in Urban Outfitters or something. Save my life. Yeah. Okay. So, so then you had how many years in that? And then what flipped? So I did a four-year stint in, um, yeah, I did a, wow, four-year stint running that production company. And we did a lot of wonderful things. You know, we, we impacted tens of millions of people in our, my tenure running that company. And we put out some good positive content, mm-hmm. great educational entertainment, and we saw the world, right? All that looks great on paper, right? The world traveler, award winner, impactful on people kind of stuff. Yeah. Looks good on paper, right? But July of 2015... I just come back from Italy after producing a Broadway play over there. And when I got back to New York, realized this ain't it. Mm-hmm. See, Italy, Rome in particular, Rome had saved my life. And I got back to New York City and I realized I felt four things in that moment. Lonely, unfulfilled, disconnected, and insecure. The last time I had felt those four things, suicide, depression, jail, rehab. I didn't want to go back, Colleen. I didn't. So I thought back, what was it about Italy that changed my life? It was the food. So I started playing around in my kitchen, accidentally created a pasta sauce recipe and figured I should probably feed it to people to see if it's even good or not. Yeah. So I started gathering people and our home became the spot. Every week, dozens of folks would come over for dinner. Dozens. They'd eat the pasta. I delegate tasks, make, you know, make them all work together to create the meal. Serve me, serve your brothers, remove your ego, have a good time, eat some damn good pasta sauce, and everybody cried. So these dinners, they ended up saving my life. They ended up curing a lot of great internal anxiety and insecurity and always being the last one called to the party. And after I I realized they were having an impact on other people as well, hundreds of people were leaving these dinners and going out and quitting their jobs, coming (laughs) out gay, forgiving their mommy issues, bearing their dog, everything. And they'd go out and make these life-changing decisions. And I realized it wasn't the pasta sauce. It's what we talked about at every dinner. See, the first hour and a half was foreplay. Cook together, drink together, eat together dine. The second hour and a half was all centered around one question. If you could give credit or thanks to one person in your life that you don't give enough credit or thanks to, who would that be? 
Who have you never thought to thank? Tell that story. If less than 33.33% of people cry, we consider it a failed night. We've used that model to spark over 500,000 relationships. That's so incredible. Can I back up though? What made you come up with that question? In your first dinner. Don't know. It's almost like going around the dinner table. What are you thankful for at Thanksgiving? But you created just one question. Yeah, just one question. Who are you grateful for? That literally created this company that has taken off. Yeah. We did that at the first dinner, but then we played around with other questions and they just never lived up. We would ask, what's your biggest fear? What's your biggest failure? What's your biggest dream? And that shit made people talk about themselves. Mm. When you ask people, who have you never given enough credit or thanks to? That creates something we now call posture of otherness. Mm. Talking about others, not themselves. That's connection. That's community. I think that's such an amazing thing, especially for anybody who's listening, to take a second and think who they're grateful for. Because if we don't tell anybody how they ever going to know or really think about what changed us. I mean, you have created companies based off of experiences. That's where most of your success comes from. Mm -hmm. You don't like something that's going on. You go do an experience, whether it's traveling to an iceberg and God knows where, or, you know, ending up in Rome and falling in love with pasta to come back and create a sauce. Because come on, what are you, some kind of uh, famous chef? You come back and you make one pasta sauce and now people are crying at your dinner table and 500,000 connections. You have the gift, the gift. (laughs) It's such a successful thing, but okay, so let's flip into this. So now you've created this big company. That you, Colleen, yeah. I'm going to pause you because you fast forwarded through something. Oh, what I do? Well, you asked your listeners something, but I must ask you the same question. Mm-hmm. If you could give credit or thanks to one person oh, in your life that you don't give enough, that you don't give enough credit or thanks to, who would that be? Mm-hmm. I mean, immediately you want to go selfish, right? Because sometimes you're your biggest own savior, but you're not. I mean, I would have to say, we'd have to be one person. Mm. I feel like- You got me till four. (laughs) (laughs) I would have to say probably, I mean, my sisters, because no matter what, ride or die at the end of the day, doesn't matter what we do, what we say, where we go in life, they're always the driving force behind to continue- to always do better, be better, create better, create more. So, you know, you could throw a shoe at them and, and run away or, and then you walk back in and you say, what do you want to eat for dinner? You know, so that type of relationship that I could always be grateful for because I could let my hair down. I could be who I want. I can tell them the, the nittiest, grittiest, darkest days of the past and they will not judge you for it and always be there to listen and then laugh at you. So I would have to say my sisters. Who looks up to whom? Mm, so there's three of us. I think it goes around in circles. I'm the middle. So it's a rotating. It's like the question of who's going to be the bridesmaid. It's like, all right, let's put somebody in the hat, you know, because at that <laughs> point you're all equally as close, right? So who, you, who do you pick out of the hat type of thing? So it depends on, you know, the year after year. Who's doing what that year? Who's pushing somebody outside their comfort zone that year? You know, so they teach me a lot. They've been through a ton together, a ton on their own with mental health and 
all the, that comes with it of trying out new medications, like you were saying, you know, so we've, we've definitely been through the ringer, the three of us. So they're my, what I'm grateful, who I'm grateful for. So thanks for putting me on the spot. Do they like the color purple as well? Uh, my older sister likes black. My younger sister definitely likes purple. The differences of personalities. That's what makes us that. I always say, if we weren't sisters, we wouldn't be friends, which is a terrible thing to tell your sisters in high school. But I was a little uh, on the bitchy side then. But also, I think that's why, because we're all different, that you have different perspectives of life and different walks of life. And one's more energetic, the other one's more, more quiet. So you have different ways of viewing life. So it wouldn't just be one person for me. I think it'd be two, those two badass sisters. Thanks, Chris. But back to the business, right? Can we get back to that? Sure. Here's my one question for you. You've made this successful company off of pasta and engaging and connecting with people. When you started that though, how hard was the conversation of if it was no longer your friends that were coming to these dinner parties? Were people ever like, why would I have a, a pasta dinner with my employees to talk about gratitude? Or like, have you ever, what kind of hurdles? Because there's tons of life coaches and business coaches that listen to this podcast. And I think sometimes the emotion, they're afraid to talk about how the emotion behind the companies can actually be healing and that sales can mm -hmm. take off or business can take mm -hmm. off. So kind of your hurdles of what and how you persevered through that. Yeah. Early on, we set a, a rule. The first time you come, you come alone. The second time you come, you bring a friend. After that, you're eligible mm -hmm. to nominate someone. And Ooh, so, er good. so early on, we only did business with people who had been to some sort of community dinner and then said, oh, this is a good idea for my company. Let me do this. So we were 100% word of mouth referral to start off. So that got us through some pretty good hurdles because we're a pretty aim small, miss small kind of niche. You know, we're not going to go, I mean, just on the, I mean, just, my Instagram. Just this morning, I put on the Instagram, I said, someone laughed at our passion yesterday. See, on a sales call, I get pretty lively and someone laughed. Say no to our business, but don't laugh at someone's soul. And that's a testament that yesterday, one of our sales calls was with someone who just is never going to understand what we're talking about. But there are enough people that have either been to our dinners or have heard about our dinners or experiences as a whole who understand that doing business with people you know, love, and trust is just the right way to do it. And you don't need science and you don't need to prove that. There's enough people out there who know that already. So that's how we started is that we only worked with people in like an inbound capacity or we didn't have to educate. We just had to right. sell. Right. And then we started, you know, outbound and, you know, the company grew and all that jazz. And so then essentially what we did was we just paired the woo-woo with science. So thank God science and business research has caught up to virtue and woo-woo and shit that's been around for thousands of years, millions of years. Yeah. See, Google, for instance, did a study, the promotion to emotion study that found that buyers with a, an emotional tie to your brand are five times more likely to consider purchasing, 13 times more likely to purchase, and 30 times more likely to pay a premium. So if you're a coach or service-based business or consultant, you want to charge a premium, right? 
engage in emotion before the sales conversation. It's statistically proven that when you bring personal value into a B2B transaction, you statistically increase upsell, cross-sell revenue and referral. What does that mean? People don't just buy you for your product or your price. They buy you because they also personally get something out of it. Now, what do people want these days? They want more time. They want to feel like they belong. They want a thrill. They want certainty. They want uncertainty, all that kind of stuff. So outside of your product or service offering, if you can do that through community, you win, Yeah. right? So we were lucky enough to not need to invent a new market. We just invented a new product for two existing markets. And I'll narrow it down to just two for this use case or for the start of our company's use case. Team building, client engagement. That's it. You have companies who for millennia have taken groups of their clients out to the fanciest steakhouse in whatever town they're flying into. 20 folks drinking overpriced cocktails, eating food that kitchen staff just can't wait to get it in and get out and just get out the door. That's not an experience. Well, we now live in an, an experience economy, right? It just so happened that at the same time we were creating this company, you also saw an uptick in concerts, music venues, yeah. live dance experiences and festivals. So people were, were more willing to invest in experiences, especially from a corporate brand perspective. Mm-hmm. Oh, fanciest new little gratitude thing on town. I'm a fast growth founder who's got an ego. I want to buy the fancy shiny object, right? Yeah. So yeah, it, that's a very abbreviated answer. But the great news is we're actually evidence-based. We're actually scientifically backed. And you talk about the mental health space earlier. The people we sell to are quantifiably miserable people. They're lonely. Right? Yeah. 51% of the American workforce reports being lonely on a consistent basis. It's equivalent to the reduction of lifespan of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Seven years off your life. Okay, that's a pain point. We solve it. Cool. Insert product offering. So CEOs, big founders, right? Our best clients, like our clients are Microsoft, Google, Dell, IBM, PwC, American Express, biggest companies on the planet. Our favorite, well, don't tell them this, but our favorite (laughs) clients are like that little mid-market founder who does between 500 million and a billion a year. Look at that prospect profile. This is our best customer. We have dozens of them. Late 30s to mid 50s, fast growth, Privately held, no outside investment, heavy investment in relationships, cash in the bank, Mm -hmm. wife and kids at home, fuel in the jet, wakes up feeling lonely every day, wakes up feeling, oh my God, why did I build such a monster? Now everybody wants something from me. I am overwhelmed. Drained, yeah. 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 So our experiences are the exact solution for that feeling. And all their clients are feeling the exact same way as well. So you might as well invite a bunch of them. (laughs) And who does like a good pasta meal and also opening up like right now, eat now more than ever to sit around. Everybody's on Zoom. How easy is it to just turn your computer on and connect with people on a deeper level than you ever thought with one small question and some sauce? I mean, the virus must have really taken you guys off. I know we were talking about a little bit before. Yeah, I mean, like the first two months of COVID sucked. I mean, yeah. the first the first week of COVID sucked. Well, first of all, I was in Italy 
in late February. I landed from Italy, went into my mandatory 14-day quarantine, weeks ahead of the rest of America going in quarantine. I came out of hibernation for one last dinner with a client on Thursday, March 12th. It was uh, the, the million-dollar listing guy, Ryan Sirhant. He charged 2500 a head, got 20 people together, had a great dinner. People came in from all over the world to meet Ryan Sirhant and to cry around the dinner table. Well, I entered quarantine again the next day. <laughs> so I was thinking for a couple of days and I was like, oh my God, everything that I use to measure myself or value myself or pay my bills is gone. I said, oh shit. We had a big book tour. We had all this kind of stuff lined up. All our clients for the rest of the year, all, you know, we were accounted for. We were made men. <laughs> so. Within a few days, from March 13th to March 19th, wallowed in my shit, morning of March 19th, I emailed 16 friends. Hey, I'm going to throw a virtual dinner tonight. You want to come? It began. We've produced 96 virtual gratitude experiences in the last what, five months, serving close to 10,000 attendees and without leaving the ever. home. Ugh. Without leaving the home. So what's great about COVID is that we we actually invented a way to like make the people cry on zoom okay. 200 other people at once. It's actually ridiculous. I can't wait to have you to a dinner. I'm going like, yeah. It's actually ridiculous. Like 200 people, people will cry need. on the same call. It's what they needed. It. So, they had to let it out. So then our business just like exploded because now clients can come to us and, and you know, instead of saying they want 12 dinners across the course of the year, they're saying we want a hundred dinners. And that's only for like one division. So like, you know, the ability to become a $10 million a year business is that much closer because of technology, because of scale, because we can prove that we can provide digital intimacy and we're sitting on hundreds of thousands of data points that you can actually monetize. Our entire research team that Madeline Haslam runs, they've just literally this week, they've just finalized the first draft of an algorithm that quantifies emotions that are exhibited at our virtual gratitude experiences. So we're actually, it's like, take a bunch of miserable people, right? Take 2,000 of your clients, bring them to 20 different dinners, 100 different dinners, whatever you want to do, the scale at which you want, you want to do, put them into our gratitude intervention, which is like a machine, just like put them in, nine minutes later, they spit out, guaranteed to have a positive emotional transformation. We're able to, the average Madeline emailed me the first round of data literally five minutes ago and I haven't even looked, but it's like the average person comes into an experience feeling like, like a 2.7 or like a 1.7, whatever she said, like a 1.7 out of five. And they leave feeling a 4.6 or whatever out of five. Like we have the proof. I just have, that's amazing. but it's like, that's, those are bigger monetizationable items. When you talk about changing culture on a systemic, like our clients have hundreds of thousands of employees. You can only change on a large scale using data. And now we right. can actually do that. So I'm, I'm forever grateful. I mean, gratitude, grateful. You're changing the way. I mean, I know you're going to hop off now here, but you, I just can't get over the fact that you used experiences in your life to change up your everything. And now experiences are changing people's lives. That's to me, that's what I take away from this conversation is the experiences gratitude. Experiences matter. You, if you love that, what you just said, 
you should go check out my buddy Simon Berg. He's got a company called Seros, C-E-R-O-S. The whole theme of their company is called Experience Matters. They literally help the biggest marketers and agencies on the planet build immersive, experiential, digital content. So marketing materials, but interactive as fuck. Just raised another $100 million for their company. Just focused in on creating good experiences. Mm, I love that. I'll check him out. Maybe we'll get him on the show too because experiences are what change the world, clearly. Oh my God, you should. Oh my yeah. God, you should. I, I don't know, <laughs> you know, if it's not Simon, then ask for Molly or Zarina or Ryan Brown, but they are awesome. But I appreciate you having this quick conversation with us. I can't really can't wait to see where you take this company next and what is going to be your next experience because I'm sure you'll fly somewhere you know, the North pole maybe and create some kind of candy cane that changes people's well, lives. Well, I mean, I mean, I, I think, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think COVID was the great experience that unlocked scale. Mm-hmm. And I mean, at the start of COVID, I felt those same four things I felt in July of 2015. Lonely, unfulfilled, disconnected, insecure. You could open up the door on suicide and there it was. That's what COVID brought a lot of people across this world. Yeah, it did. Absolutely. And your company is there to help them shake them out of that So Mm -hmm. we appreciate you and everything that you're doing. Like I said, I can't wait to see where you go next, but I appreciate your time. Friend, from the bottom of my heart, I want to let you know I am grateful for you. This podcast truly has given me so much excitement, happiness, hope, gratefulness, everything, all the feels. You have all been so supportive, and I can't wait to share this journey and have you come along with me. I hope you enjoyed today's story as much as I did and really got to think about who you are truly grateful for. Remember, it doesn't have to be somebody who did good for you. It could be somebody who really treated you really crappy, but you became such a better person because of it. You know, I just did Chris's 747 dinner last night. And let me say, one, I cried. And two, I went in feeling pressure. And when I left, no joke, I felt so much lighter. Something about complete strangers talking with no judgment is just so magical and healing. And something I'm really telling you, you must try at least once. You can find Chris at 747.org or check him out on LinkedIn. I'll put it in the show notes. And honestly, if you have any interest in joining a dinner, shoot an email over to david at 747club.org and tell him Colleen sent you for the dinner. I don't need to know about it. Just do it for you. I am telling you, you will not regret it. Next episode is all about the great Mike Beanie. We're going to dig a little bit deeper into mental health and the stigmas all around it to have the discussion because now more than ever, I think it's time to talk about this. I can't wait to see you there.